For starters, a little history with Corey Robin, beloved blogger and historian at the City University of New York, as he's going to tell you. Neoliberalism surfaced 40 years ago as a political strategy, a bit of a switch on Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. In the 30s, a lot of Republicans had fought back for free markets against the welfare state. By the 1970s, after World War and recovery, up-and-coming Democrats I covered as a reporter were adapting some old themes experimentally. Beginning in the 19, roughly in the 1970s, there's a reconsideration within the Democratic Party of the standard New Deal tenets. In particular, the commitment to the labor movement Mm. and labor unions, the commitment to the state intervening in the economy and redistributing resources on behalf of people who aren't wealthy. And neoliberals are really at the center of this. There's figures like a young Stephen Breyer, who is a staffer in the Senate, starts pushing for deregulation of transportation and of banking. And it comes together under Jimmy Carter. We deregulated the airlines. We deregulated the trucking industry. We deregulated financial institutions. We decontrolled oil and natural gas prices and needless and burdensome federal regulations, which benefit nobody and which harm all of us. People forget, because he's been so loathed by the Republican Party for so many years and has been reclaimed by the Democrats, but he was really disliked by many Democrats because he was thought to be an untrustworthy liberal. He was the first neoliberal, you might say, in the White House, who successfully pushed for deregulation, who really broke with the unions over a couple of key issues, uh, so much so that it provoked a big challenge from Teddy Kennedy in 1980, a failed challenge. So Jimmy Carter was really, as I say, the first neoliberal But he was such a controversial, divisive figure within the Democratic Party that I would say it really was not until Bill Clinton that the Democratic Party embraced neoliberalism pretty much completely. And that's why you see the final destruction of welfare under someone like Bill Clinton. But but that was the final thing that had happened. Much of the work had begun earlier. Hold it there before you let Jimmy Carter go. I think I was present at the creation, the moment. Jimmy Carter running in the Pennsylvania primary. I was covering for the New York Times. He was meeting with the Mine Workers Union. They wanted black lung coverage. And he told them, sorry, no. And the famous line was, they chose to be miners, <laughs> meaning that's the hazard of the job. You're out of luck. And he yeah. was running, of course, in that 76 campaign against the absent liberals, Hubert Humphrey and Ted Kennedy. And he got away with it. He got away with saying no to a labor union. And the rest yeah. <laughs> unfolded from that moment, I think. And people also forget this, but in the late part of that campaign, the labor unions were very nervous about Carter. So there was a Stop Carter movement, which failed, and they looked to a lot of the more liberal senators. But it was really the moment, I think, where the party took that turn, and in some ways it never really looked back. Milestones along the way. I wonder how people can spot neoliberalism on the street in their lives. In terms of a milestone, I think there's a key document. There was an article by Charles Peters in the Washington Monthly called A Neoliberal's Manifesto, and it sets out many of the basic arguments for the movement. And what's interesting about it is how resonant it, I think, continues to be. I think people today would still recognize it as a distinctive type, very suspicious, as I said, of unions and of big government. But what's also interesting is that it claims to 
care about the truly downtrodden, the truly poor. And what Peter says is that unions and big government favor middle class people. They don't actually favor the truly poor. And what we need to have are leaner government programs that are targeted to the people who truly need them. And I think right there, you see some of the debate we saw this past year between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary campaign. Hmm. Sanders famously called for free college for everybody. And Hillary Clinton's response and many people around her, uh, including the current head of the DNC, Tom Perez, was, well, why should somebody who's wealthy, someone like Donald Trump, get a benefit like that? Benefits like that should only be for the people who really need it. The hallmark of, or one of the hallmarks of neoliberalism that we are still stuck with today is this kind of means-tested hmm. notion of social programs, rather than social security, which goes to everybody, and everybody benefits from it, or Medicare, which everybody at a certain age benefits from. And because everybody benefits from these programs, they're very hard to get rid of. Instead, you have this style of thinking that says, no, government programs that are redistributive in some way should really be targeted to people at the bottom. And the problem with that thinking, I mean, there's many problems with it, but the key one is that it's politically not sustainable over the long haul, as we saw with welfare. Welfare was a means-tested, targeted program, and it became the easiest thing in the end to get rid of. Social Security, most Republicans wouldn't even touch it today because it's such a popular program. So when you ask what are some of the touchstones or the ways of thinking or seeing neoliberalism, I think that's a key one. And then the people, Gary Hart, Paul Songus, Michael Dukakis, Joe Biden in some degree, and finally, the triumphant Bill Clinton. What about them? Who were they? So they were all younger Democrats in the 70s. Many of them had been active in the anti-war movement. Gary Hart had been George McGovern's campaign advisor in 1972. And they were a generation that was more suspicious of the state in part for some very good reasons. You know, for them, the state meant the Vietnam War and the national security state, but they extended it into the realm of the economy and they tended to see the disasters of Vietnam writ large in the disasters of the great society, let's say, or of the mm -hmm. New Deal. That is, these were big government planners in their minds, you know, thinking they could reconstruct the world through government rather than letting markets which are much more nimble and much more responsive to everybody's particular concerns. So there was a notion that markets could really be a, a way of ordering society that allowed for widespread prosperity and distribution, but also more individualized freedom and responsiveness. People like Gary Hart, as you said, Bruce Babbitt was another, James Fallows, who was Gary Hart's speechwriter, is still a journalist today. Robert Reich, I'd say, was another big neoliberal, although he's had quite a turn in recent years. All of them, I think, were really drawn to this idea of the nimbleness of markets and the flexibility of markets, and that government should really try to stay out as much as possible. And what's interesting about these sorts of arguments is they were very familiar on the right. If you read Milton Friedman or if you read someone like Friedrich Hayek, who was the European version of Milton Friedman, these neoliberals were whether consciously or not, cribbing arguments that had been the stock and trade of the free market right since the 1930s. Corey, Robin, look around you. How do you know and what should people see as evidence that they're living in a 
sort of operating system called neoliberalism? So I teach at City University of New York. It used to be the crown jewel, the pride and joy of New York City and New York State. It was free up until the mid-1970s, and it educated everybody across the working class, the middle class, African-American, Latino, white. And since the 1970s, there's been a real assault. I'm just giving you one example that's very visceral and familiar to me, but we can multiply these. Since the 1970s, there's been a real assault on this civic institution that was there for everybody and that was free. So now students are paying uh, somewhere along the lines of $6,500 to $7,000, which if you know up in Cambridge and you're thinking about universities there may not seem like a lot, but we have a lot of poor students. We have a lot of undocumented students. So it's a lot of money. And the quality of the education has just really gone down. The buildings are falling apart. The salaries, you can pay professors to recruit people and staff. All of that has gone down. So this, to me, is emblematic of neoliberalism, which is a real hostility and suspicion of what the state can do. So you end up defunding it. And then lo and behold, once you defund it and deprive it of resources, you turn around and you say, well, it's terrible. It's crappy institution. I mean, and this is what state institutions are all about. So to me, that's neoliberalism in a nutshell. That was Corey Robin, and the last you'll hear this hour on neoliberalism as mere politics.